let's stand and take our Bible, 2 Samuel 16, 2 Samuel 16, we're still off series from uh, our series on I'm Going Higher, but you can take this, this particular passage and just add it to that, 2 Samuel 16, and look around, if your neighbor doesn't have a Bible, please share your Bible with them, make sure you're in the King James Version translation, if you don't have that translation, look to your neighbor next to you that hopefully has one, and that'll help you there, 2 Samuel 16. If tonight you are uh, not a member of the church and, and did not receive an invitation to be part of a new member's orientation class, I encourage you to see me tonight. We started about two weeks ago on Wednesday nights and doing, having a great class, and I encourage you to be there. There's just a lot of good information for new members that will help you grow and understand the mechanics of the church, how the church flows, and what we're doing, and that will be a blessing to you this evening. 2 Samuel 16, say amen if you're there. Amen. Verse 15, we're going to read down. And uh, down all the way to the end of the chapter. And Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. And notice this name, Ahithophel, with him. Would you underline the name Ahithophel? And it came to pass when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, was coming to Absalom, that Hushai sent unto Absalom, God save the king, God save the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why wentest thou not with thy friend? And Hushai said unto Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and his people, this people, and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be, and with him will I abide. And again, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son, as I have served in thy father's presence? So will I be in thy presence. Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you what we shall do. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go in unto thy father's concubines, which he is left to keep the house, and all Israel shall hear that thou art abhorred of thy father. Then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house, and Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. Did you catch that? In other words, the counsel of Ahithophel was equated to the word of God. That is the authority his counsel had. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Tonight, I want to bring to you a Bible study message tonight. And I kind of advertised a little bit this morning about um, a disease that we, we need God to help us look at this evening. I call it the killer cancer. Not the cure for cancer, but the killer cancer. And we want to see, as he's, this man Ahithophel is one of several characters in the Bible who had to deal with a, a, a let's just say, a a condition that's inherent in every Christian. And that condition is the condition of bitterness. And tonight we want to take a moment just to see what is bitterness, how it affects us, and how to look diligently lest any of us fail of the grace of God, as the Bible says. Now, Father, tonight we pause for a minute to, and for a minute to thank you for the joy of the Lord. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Bible says that, uh, that uh, crying and weeping may endure for night, but joy cometh in the morning. And Lord, even as we saw in the life of Mary Magdalene this morning, that so many of us can come from lives where we have been troubled by demons, 
We've been troubled by heartache and disappointments, fears, worries and weaknesses, bad reports, setback after setback. We kind of wonder, what does the Lord have to say to us on that? And tonight we look at this man, Ahithophel, and we realize that, Lord, he is a profile on what happens when bitterness gets out of control in our lives. And tonight I pray you help us this evening because no one, no one is, no one is, 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 is exempt from being, from bitterness encompassing us and taking control of us. And I pray this evening that you would give us discernment and help because we realize that sometimes in life, life can be a roller coaster for all of us and our emotions and our lives and experiences. And we just really need to understand, Lord, that in this area, this is one area that the devil uses to, to destroy and dismantle a testimony in a life. Father, I pray this evening for every one of your brothers and sisters in Christ to leave this evening with the joy of Jesus Christ, the power of the Lord, the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of righteousness to be sown in peace of them that make peace. God, would you give us discernment tonight so that through your word you'll be glorified and pleased. Help us this evening that you'd open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy law. Speak to our hearts this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people say, Amen. You may be seated. Our study tonight is a character study on the man by the name of Ahithophel. The Bible has so many characters that you could learn. I, I think you could really spend an entire year studying the characters of the Bible and not really even exhausting all of those characters. Uh, several of our departments right now, this, this quarter, are going through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, this is probably, I don't know, my fourth or fifth time I've gone through just through one, a couple of our departments. And I'm enjoying it more thoroughly now than I've ever had before just because there's so many things about Nehemiah that when I, the more I study the man's life and his godliness, his character, I feel is missing. I'm hoping and praying next year is part of our theme and series that we're going to go through next year is to help lead the church to a study on the life of Job. I think that will do us very well. Not so much on Job, but what Job discovered about God because that's the more important thing about that and what we can learn from that. And this evening we want to see some things about Ahithophel. And so I want to get right into the message tonight. Now when we look at Ahithophel, let me give you some background about him. He was a very prominent man in Israel. Ahithophel was an older man. He may have been perhaps in his 60s or 70s at the time of this writing. Ahithophel was an important advisor to King David. Twice Ahithophel is called the king's counselor. We find that in 2 Samuel 15 verse 12 in our first introduction to him and again in 1 Chronicles 27 verse 33. He was the king's counselor. Now that may not mean anything to you but back in that day if you were the king's counselor I mean basically before the king made a decision he'd ask you what do you think? And so this man had to be very wise, he had to be very trusted, he had to be, very, he had to be someone that was very, uh, very into things as far as having knowledge there. Ahithophel was a trusted man. If you were the king's counselor, you were trusted. He was an influential man. He had to use his counsel for, for the right purpose. And so he was influential. He was a powerful man. Notice what it says here in the verse that we just read in verse 23. Ahithophel was at a point in his life where it says, when he counseled in those days, it was, as, it was as if a man had inquired at the oracles of God. In other words, he was seeking what is the mind of God on this matter. Ahithophel was David's friend for many years. Now, I was reading some, some Jewish things, some things about some Jewish antiquities there, and I was reading about what the Jews thought about him, and some, some of the Jews believe in some of their writings that Ahithophel actually had turned against David, and they believe that, that uh, perhaps that he, had to, he actually hurt David along the way before all this incident happened. I'm not so sure that happened. I think that's kind of a Jewish take on that from my studies. But as I, as I study the scriptures here, everything we can read, I believe Ahithophel was a friend to David in many, many ways. And uh, we, we see that until we get to this passage of scripture in 2 Samuel 15. Now, you might want to write this down. Ahithophel had a son that's mentioned one time in the scriptures. His son's name was uh, Eliam. 
And Eliam is found in 2 Samuel 23. He's listed as one of David's mighty men. And so we find that Ahithophel, we find some things about this man's family. We find Ahithophel is in the scriptures. We find that he's a son in scripture. We're also going to find tonight that he had a granddaughter that, that is very prominent in this, in this picture tonight. But we want to see tonight that we see this biography of Ahithophel is about a powerful man who was destroyed by a power that was bigger than him that took away his life. And I want to repeat that again. He was a powerful man who was destroyed by a power greater than him that took away his life. Ahithophel became a victim of a killer cancer. Ahithophel was a man who became a victim of bitterness. It's interesting to note that the word, of the, the meaning for bitterness can be traced to a word uh, called, that, that's pronounced bitan or B-I-T-A-N. It's connected to this word bitan. Bitan is where we get our word bite or biter, which is kind of interesting. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul makes mention as he talks about the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. He says, but if you bite and devour one another... Biting and devouring and eating of one another is kind of tied to this, man, this matter of bitterness. I read the story of a man who maybe you've heard the story, a man who was bitten by a dog that was running loose. It didn't have a leash on it. The dog was running loose, and the dog came to this man and took a bite out of him. And, of course, the man got concerned because he wasn't sure if the dog had rabies or not. So he immediately went to his doctor to check for rabies and to treat the wound. As he was waiting there for the doctor to come and look at it, he asked one of the attending nurses, can I get a piece of paper and a clipboard, and can you give me a pen? And so he started writing out, and he basically took the clipboard, and you can see him on, on the left side. He started writing down the names of people. On the right side, he put a, put a phrase next to that. Well, the doctor finally came in. He saw this man feverishly writing down these names and writing next to your name something there. And he looked at him. He says, sir, what are you doing? Are you writing out your last will and testament? I know you got bit by a dog. I just read the chart here. I know you got bit by a dog, and you're concerned about having rabies. But are you writing out your last will and testament? And the man said this with, 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 with basically a smirk on his face. He says, no. But if I do have rabies, I'm writing down the names of the people that have done me wrong so I can go and bite them in return. And I think that's, that's kind, of a, kind of a picture there of a bitterness there And uh, as we look at that. Uh, we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 23, Peter told Simon Magus when he confronted him about buying the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, he told Simon Magus, he revealed to him what was in his heart. He said, Sir, thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Bitterness, when we think of something bitter, we think of something that's acrid in taste. You know, when you bite into something that's very bitter, it just has a distinct feeling, a taste to it, or, 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 or taste and feeling to it. And it's very acrid, if you would. That's kind of a name that describes bitterness, is acrid. Uh, either you, you acquire taste for bitterness, or you don't acquire taste for bitterness. Bitterness is a strong and controlling feeling of resentment, hurt anger, wrath, and unforgiveness that is harbored against another person. Let me repeat that again. Bitterness is a strong and controlling feeling of resentment, hurt, anger, wrath, and unforgiveness that is harbored against another person. Kent Crockett described it this way. He said, bitterness is the offspring of an unhealed wound whose parents are unforgiveness and time. I thought that was pretty interesting. Bitterness is the offspring of an unhealed wound whose parents are unforgiveness and time. Dr. Adrian Rogers, who's gone home to be with the Lord, wrote in a book entitled Mastering Your Emotions. He defined bitterness as following. Bitterness is a blight, an emotional cancer, which consumes many a person who once had the bosom of eternal springtime upon them. This evening, I want you to see some things the Bible teaches us about this matter of bitterness. Notice, number one, we see the 
presence of bitterness. The presence of bitterness. Go with me tonight to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. Would you go there please tonight? Hebrews 12, 15. We want to see first of all the beginning here, the presence of bitterness. Hebrews 12, 15 tells us this. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. And would you notice this? Lest any root of bitterness uh, springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. You see tonight, we must understand this as we start. Bitterness is a root. It's a root that's hidden. A root you cannot see unless it starts springing up. Most roots you cannot see. One of the most annoying things to me on any property I see on our church property or somewhere else to go or I'm around my home is our weeds to get around the place. I hate weeds. And the way you deal with weeds, of course, you know, landscapers, their way of doing it, they'll take a weed whacker and whack it away, but the weeds will come back up. And the best way to deal with weeds seasonally is you got to get down there and you got to pull the weeds up. And it's amazing you pull the weeds up how long the roots are. A few weeks ago, um, I, w- I walked by over here by the BC. It was on a Monday and I walked by there. And I looked at that, uh, those boxes that we have, not boxes, but the, the concrete area where there's just a lot of plants there and we catch the runoff of water that comes off the roof there. And I took a look, I said, wait, that doesn't look like one of the plants in there. And I got up a little closer and there were these weeds that were growing in there. They just kind of, just kind of camouflage itself with all the other plant growth. And some of the weeds, Brother Reyes, some of those weeds were about this tall. And so I got in there and I had my slacks on. I said, I got to get these out because it just was annoying me. And I got in and I started pulling it out and I realized they were embedded very deep. So I started pulling and pulling, and some of those weeds I, that I pulled out, the roots were about this long, if you can imagine that deep one nestled inside that bed of dirt there. And roots you cannot see, but they are there. And I want to tell you tonight that every one of us, every one of us here tonight has the root of bitterness inside of us. The presence of bitterness is there, it just has to find time for it to be cultivated and nurtured before it manifests itself. It is a root that must work its way up into our spirit. If it's allowed to work in our spirit, it affects us. It's a root you cannot see, but that it's there. And when it comes out, it bears forth fruit. And when its fruit is manifested, we know that bitterness is in. We'll see some of that. So there's the presence of bitterness. Bitterness is present in every person. But notice, secondly, tonight, I want you to consider the path of bitterness. The path of bitterness. Now, let's look at the life of Ahithophel for a moment this evening. Ahithophel was a victim of bitterness. Now, before this all happened, Ahithophel was a good guy. Ahithophel was a happy man. Ahithophel had a good paying job in the kingdom of David. Ahithophel was a man who was considered David's counselor and David's friend. Ahithophel was a man that was David's man, the go-to guy. If he needed counsel or, or second opinion or something, he went to him. Ahithophel was so trusted, he had a son that trained under David and become one of David's mighty men. Look it up in 2 Samuel 23. But Ahithophel also had a granddaughter, which was the daughter of Eliam, Eliam and his na- her name was Bathsheba. Now, you know the story about this, and we're not going to spend a lot of time, but for those of you new to the Bible, I'm going to take you to the story. Israel, back in 2 Samuel 9 and 10, was in battle against the Ammonites. And the Ammonites had, had, had gone against them, and so David went to war with them, and he defeated them. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 10 that David had a decisive victory. And because they were doing so well, and he trusted Joab, his general, with this, David sent all the men out to go to battle against the Ammonites. Now, the battle wasn't completed. The war wasn't won. But the Bible says something interesting. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel went out to war, and when kings went out to war, David remained behind. For whatever reason, David stayed behind. He just felt confident in his men. 
that they would take care of the job. And David was feeling a little bit listless at that time because David was a busy man and he was a thinking man and he was a strategic man. And David did something that was probably very faulty for him. He walked out on his roof one day and as he walked out, he looked out there and he saw on the roof below him, he saw from that distance, uh, uh, next door to him in a neighbor's house, he saw a woman that was bathing. He saw enough that was going on. He saw this woman there bathing and he just stared and he stared and his lust started to inflame him and he started wondering who that was. And so the first question he had was, who is that woman whose house that belonged to? He sent a courier out to find out. The courier came back and told him, that is, the, that is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Well, Uriah happened to be one of David's mighty men. Uriah married Eliam's daughter, Bathsheba. And David faced a very critical decision. Will he succumb to his lust or will he flee his youthful lust? Now, the right thing for him to have done was to flee youthful lust. You say, what do you do when lusts arise in your life? The Bible says, Flee youthful lust. Run away from it. Get as far away from it as you can. We find that example in Joseph in Genesis 39 when this, this woman, the, the manager of his household, Potiphar's wife, appealed to him and tried to seduce him. The Bible says Joseph ran from her. Well, J David faced that decision, and I'm sure it crossed his mind. Well, this is, Eli this is Eliam's daughter. This is Ahithophel's granddaughter. They're my good friends. They well represent me. This is Uriah's wife. And David, probably out of honor and respect to them, should have said, no, I'm not going to think that way. And David's the same one that wrote in Psalms 101, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. But David forgot all that, just like you and I would forget those things. Just as I, like you and I, in that moment of passion, that moment of lust, if we're not very careful, that moment of weakness, if we didn't pray that day, and we didn't pray enough, and we didn't read our Bible, and we weren't sanctified in the mind of God, listen, we could find ourselves falling to sin. And David immediately said, sent a message back to the courier. He says, go get her for me. And David brought her back to David's place. And David fell into sin with her. And it began, and, just, and things started to roll, just, just go bad for David. David found out later on that she was pregnant with his child. It was just, the situation gets worse and worse. So David's thinking, well, I've got to fix this problem here. Because, you know, this is, this is Uriah's wife, and he's one of my mighty men. This is Eliam's daughter, and he's one of my mighty men. And this is Ahithophel's granddaughter. And he says, I, I, if this gets out, he says, man, this is going to be a, this is a mess. This is a, a scandal scandal worse than any scandal you can think of. So he brings Uriah back home. He tries to get Uriah to go back home to be with his wife. But Uriah is such a loyal guy. And there's a battle going on with the Ammonites that, that Uriah says, I can't go back home to my wife. He says, the men of Israel are out there fighting. He says, listen, I can't go out there and enjoy myself. I realize you brought me home king. But he says, I've got all my friends out there. I've got my colleagues out there on the battlefront. He says, I can't do that. And so David resorted to one last idea he had. And that idea was, well, listen, then I've got to put this man on the front line. I've got to have him killed so that it looks like, so, so I can cover this thing up. And in David's mind, all he's trying to do is cover up his sin. And so he, he writes a letter, gives it to Joab. Joab is carrying the death sentence for, for Uriah. He goes out on, and, and tells Uriah, the, the king has commissioned you to go to the front line. He feels you can do a good job representing him. And the Bible describes it this way, where only brave men would go. And so Uriah goes to the front line. Uriah's killed on that front line with all a bunch of other men there. Word gets back to David. And word gets back to Bathsheba. And Bathsheba, of course, is grief-stricken that her husband's been killed in battle, not really even understanding exactly everything that David did at that moment of time. And so after she's grieved for a period of time, David beckons to her and brings her to his home, and he marries her. Now, to, to everybody who didn't know what's going on, that looked like just something the king was being very sympathetic. But David was covering up his sin. And it wasn't long before people started to find out because there was the courier who knew, and there was Joab who knew, and there were some of the soldiers who knew. And people were putting two and two together, and they started to realize, now, we can't gossip against the king, but the word 
word started to get around very secretly and surreptitiously around the kingdom that, that David had done this thing. And word eventually got back to Ahithophel. And word got to Eliam. These men found out that these things had happened and that uh, David had gotten this way. Well, let's go down to 2 Samuel 15. During the course of all this, of course, David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, and Nathan tells him everything he did wrong. David feels grief about the matter. He confessed that he had sinned against God, and he confessed that he sinned, but he, but he couldn't change things. He couldn't change the fact that Uriah was dead, that he was guilty of the blood of this man, that he murdered this man. He couldn't change the fact that he committed adultery with this woman, Bathsheba, and he should have been stoned to death for both those things. He couldn't change those things, and so God said, I have to chasten you, son. And so God took the life of that little baby that was born to Bathsheba. God took her home, but God blessed him with another child. And that other child, that second son, his name was Solomon. And God blessed him. Of course, Solomon, as we know, became the king, the, the king that succeeded David. And so David's living with this problem, but David had a sword that went through his family, and he had trouble with his family. And through that, Absalom became a rebel. He rebelled against his father, David. And when he came back home after being out, uh, being, uh, out of the kingdom for two years, David did not want to see his son. He wanted nothing to do with him. And so Absalom became a rebel. And re as a rebel, he stood in the gate there. And as he stood in the gate, the Bible describes this way, that Absalom was stealing the hearts of the men who came to him. And Absalom was a very beautiful, very handsome looking guy. And he was very articulate. And he knew, how to, he knew how to sway people. He learned politics from his father. And he learned how to be very articulate about his things. And so he started to sway the hearts of the men. As you read 2 Samuel 15, Absalom is pulling the hearts of the kingdom towards him. And you've got to remember, David is kind of gun shy about things. And David realizes he messed up. And David is not as perhaps as, as public as he used to be. And David understands that there's, there's, a, there's something going on in the kingdom, but he's not being proactive about it. He's just kind of letting things lie, and he's not dealing with the issue there. And so the time comes when Absalom leads a revolt. Absalom goes down to the city of Hebron, and from there he announces he's taking over the kingdom. And so his servants come back. They say, King, we've got some trouble. Absalom is leading the hearts of the people against you. And this thing is unraveling, and David's concerned. And David becomes scared at this moment. And David tells some of his servants, you better get the people together, and the people loyal to me, and we better flee the kingdom because this, this big following that Absalom has may come after us. And so Absalom leads the kingdom. As he does so, notice what the scriptures tell us that we just read in 2 Samuel Second Samuel says, it says, 2 Samuel 15, verse 12, it says, as Absalom is building the kingdom and people are coming to him, the Bible says, Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, where he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Now, up until this moment of time, we don't know anything about Ahithophel. Up until that moment of time, Ahithophel's name doesn't come up, but Ahithophel got the message. Ahithophel knew that David had done this thing, and Ahithophel was not very happy, just like other people were. And at that moment of time, Ahithophel was not among those who left the kingdom with David. Ahithophel stayed behind. And when Absalom beckoned for Ahithophel, Ahithophel did not pause one moment. Ahithophel agreed with a willing heart to join ranks with Absalom. Watch what happens. During this time, this, this, this bitterness is building up inside of Ahithophel. It's seething inside of him. It was a root that was hidden, but now it's become a root that's harmful because this root has now pushed its way up. The Bible describes in Hebrews 12, 15, lest any root of bitterness springing up, it's working its way through the soil. It doesn't matter how soft the soil is or how hard the soil is. When bitterness goes to work, it works its way up that soil. And as it works its way up that soil, it springs forth there. And it's it's brought his, it sprung itself forth 
forth against David. Ahithophel developed a bitter and cantankerous and hateful spirit against David. He had no qualms about joining ranks with Absalom. He had no qualms with this rebellion. He came on board with Absalom. He saw Absalom to be his means by which he would execute revenge and hatred against David there. We read in 1st, 2nd Samuel 15, 31. When David heard about that, what you notice is his word got to David about this. The, the Bible says, And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. When David prayed that prayer, he was scared. He was frightened. He didn't really know how all of this was going to unfold. And he saw all of this happening. Listen, the pathway of bitterness worked in the same way in Ahithophel's heart, just like it could work in your heart and mine. Listen to this tonight. We get bitter because of a boss that fired us. We get bitter because of a spouse that walked out on us. We get bitter because of a business partner we think cheated us out of money. Or a friend that violated our trust. Or father who abused you. Or mother who mistreated you. Or brother and sister in Christ who let you down. Or a church in which you feel you got hurt. Or preacher who didn't see you or call you. I mean, you name it, whatever it may be. Bitterness starts working. Something triggers it. And as it triggers it, that bitter root starts to work its way up all the way to the surface. It starts to spring up there. Bitterness can be, can be, can be horizontal in direction against people that you, that you think in your heart have hurt you. But listen, bitterness can also be vertical in direction and can be against God as well. Listen to this. They have the recording of a Titanic survivor. A woman who lost her husband when the Titanic sunk became very bitter towards God. And uh, in her acrid bitterness, she's quoted as saying, God went down with the Titanic. I read of the story recently about President Franklin Pierce. I don't know how many of you know Franklin Pierce. Franklin Pierce is not well, as well known as perhaps someone as Abraham Lincoln. But Franklin Pierce was the 14th president of the United States and the youngest to assume office at that time. Franklin Pierce had won the election. He won it overwhelmingly. And on January, January 6, 1853, Franklin Pierce, his wife, and their 11-year-old son, Benny, were on a train going from Boston, Massachusetts, to make their way across the state of Massachusetts. Somehow that train got derailed off the track as it was entering Andover, Massachusetts. Somehow it got derailed off the track, and it went upside down when it derailed, and it hit an embankment there, and it was a terrible accident. Amazingly, Franklin Pierce and his wife survived, but their 11-year-old son, Benny, did not survive this wreck. In fact, Benny, as it, as it turned over, Benny's body was nearly decapitated at that, during this accident. When Franklin Pierce got a hold of him, the first thing came to his mind is, is my wife safe and where's Benny? And he looked around and he saw the remains of Benny. It was a horrifying, gruesome sight. He tried to shield his wife from seeing them. And his wife saw what happened to Benny. It so traumatized both of them. This is just a couple weeks before he used to be inaugurated into office as the president. It, they, it was so traumatizing. Both of them fell into severe depression that affected him through the whole entire term of his office as the presidency. His wife was so traumatized, she began to have dreams and nightmares of believing that perhaps this was God's way. Listen, this was her way of thinking, that God was punishing her by saying, by saying I should have told my husband not to run for, president, for the office of president. God, she thought that God was punishing her by taking her son away from her. On the day of Franklin Pierce's inauguration, when men normally put their hand on a Bible and were sworn to office, Franklin 
Stephen Pierce was so angry towards God, he was so bitter towards God, he told everybody with that inaugural process, I don't want to swear in a Bible. You give me a law book, I'll put my hand on a law book and I'll swear in a law book, but I will not be sworn to office with a Bible. And he made very clear that he had an intense bitterness against God. He, instead of affirming his oath on the Bible, the Word of God, he affirmed his oath on a law book. His refusal to be sworn was because, by, through a Bible was by virtue of the fact that bitterness had worked its way in his heart. I'm telling you this evening, there's the presence of bitterness in every one of us, and the pathway bitterness works through many different things here. Notice thirdly, if you would tonight, we see the pathway, we see the, the presence, but you notice thirdly the poison of bitterness. Now when we look at this man Ahithophel, knowing that he's a counselor of David, and he gave David, he was David's man for many years. This bitterness that came in and worked inside of him like a poison. In 1876, the Japanese introduced a plant to the United States at the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition. This plant is named the kudzu plant. <clears throat> the kudzu plant has great antioxidant capabilities if you can figure out how to digest it. But the kudzu plant, unbeknownst to the United States, when they planted it, they thought it would be a good plant to grow to plant. But they didn't realize until after they, they planted it, over one million acres of it in the 30s and 40s, they didn't recognize that this was the most invasive species of plants ever planted. And where kudzu is planted, it overtakes everything around it. You notice in the picture there, the kudzu plants in the southeastern parts of our country just overtakes plants and trees. And when it does, basically it blocks out the sun from being able to shine in the photosynthesis being worked on the plants. It blocks out the sun. It also blocks out necessary oxygen. And it literally smothers the plants that it covers. Once established, a kudzu plant grows at the rate of up to one foot a day and 60 feet 60 feet tall annually. It is such a very, very vigorous vine that even to this day, it smothers and kills everything around it. Hey, listen, bitterness is like the kudzu plant, if I could say that. It grows very rapidly, and it moves in such a capacity way, it overtakes everything in its path. Listen to this tonight. Bitterness affects you physically. If you've got bitterness, you're more prone to high blood pressure, uh, ulcers, restlessness, sleeplessness, anxiety disorders, burnout, and stroke. Psychologists have found that most people's burnout, when you trace it down to one thing, is not because they worked too hard. It's not because they were overworked. They found as they got really deep beneath the surface, it was really because those people who, who said they were burned out, they really became distressed because of perhaps a disappointment or something that happened, but mainly because of bitterness that came in. Bitterness affects you physically. Bitterness affects you mentally. You can't get your thoughts and mind off of being hurt. It bothers you. It recycles itself over and over in your mind. You think about what you perceive as a hurt. You think about what you perceive as a disillusionment. It recycles itself in your mind. It affects you physically. It affects you mentally. It affects you emotionally. Doctors know that the bitterness acts like a depressant. Uh, there's no such thing as a happy, bitter person. It acts as a depressant. And uh, pe bitter people tend to be critical and negative and fault-finding. And if they're honest, they battle with depression as well with that there. I mean, you just asked yourself this, morning, this evening, if you're battling some of these things, then most likely began because something triggered that bitterness that was a root inside your heart. Bitter people tend to be emotionally distant. Someone said this, a bitter person is like a porcupine. He may have a lot of good points, but he's sure hard to get close to. Amen? And so we look at bitter people and ten their tendencies. They're unforgiving. They're ungrateful. They don't have a sense of thankfulness. They can't be thankful things because they're just this bitterness has gripped them. Look at Ahithophel. 
How did bitterness affect him? How did it poison him? Well, first of all, he joined ranks with Absalom. He was loyal to the cause of David until Absalom rose up, and he joined the ranks of Absalom. His goal was to take revenge on David. He, instead of becoming a man that would give good counsel to David, he became a man who gave counsel over there to, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, 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 to Absalom. And notice, if you would, one of the things that we find, that look at chapter 17, verse 1. Because deep in Ahithophel's heart, that poison worked his way in his mind. He had one goal in mind. He wanted to take revenge, and he wanted to take David out. He wanted to kill David. And look at chapter 17. He was asked to give counsel to Absalom. This is what he said in chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. Moreover, Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Let me now choose out 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue after David this night. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed, and will make him afraid. And all the people that are with him shall flee. And I will smite the king only, and I will bring back all the people to thee. The man whom thou seekest is as if all return, and so all the people shall be in peace. I mean, Ahithophel saw his opportunity. He joined ranks, and then when the right opportunity came, he basically told Absalom, listen, let me go. I'll choose out 12,000 men from your kingdom. I'll take 12,000. We'll find the king where he's weak, and we'll find him at his low spot. I will personally kill him, and I'll bring back all the people. Don't worry about the people killing the people. We just want to kill the king. And Ahithophel had just one thing in mind. He's thinking, you ruined my granddaughter. You ruined my family. You took my, my, my son, my, my, her husband, and, and you, you put him on the front lines. You had a murder. You got away with murder. You got away with immorality. You got away with this. You defied and worked yourself through your prominence and through your influence not to be under the Jewish law. He said, I'm going to get revenge upon you. And bitter people will not rest until they get their day of revenge. They will wait it out. But when the opportunity opens up, they will seize it with all malice of heart. Someone said this, E. Stanley Jones, a preacher of days gone by. He said, a rattlesnake, if cornered, will sometimes become so angry it will bite itself and inflict itself with its own venom. Notice this here. This man, Ahithophel, was poisoned through his entirety, from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. He was poisoned with the thought of bitterness, of getting even, getting revenge, and he would not rest until he took out David. Now, bitterness poisoned him, but would you notice this? Bitterness poisons the people around us. Bitterness affects other people around us. The Bible says, lest any root of bitterness springing up defile many. Look what happens here in 2 Samuel 15, verses 20 and 22. Go back there, please. The first thing Absalom does, he goes to Hithophel and he says, give me counsel. Give me counsel here. Tell me, tell me something I can do. He was respected because, remember, the Bible says that his words were, like, were treated as the oracles of God. Now, this is a bitter man. He's a man with a negative spirit and a critical spirit and an unforgiving spirit. And, he doesn't, and he's, just, he's just filled with this venom inside of him. And the Bible says as he came to notice chapter 15. Give counsel among you what we shall do in verse 21. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, go unto thy father's, uh, excuse me, I think it's chapter 16, or chapter 16, I'm sorry there. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, go unto thy father's concubines, which he has left to keep the house, and all those who shall hear that thou art a whore of thy father, then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house, and Absalom went unto his father's concubines inside of Israel. Now watch what happened. David defiled Bathsheba. David committed gross immorality against her. When David left the kingdom, he left ten of his concubines behind to keep house, as the Bible describes. So Ahithophel knows what's going on. He says, here's my counsel. He says, you want to get even with your father? You want to make your father look bad? 
You want to make your father, you want to let people know that you are greater than your father, go into your father's concubines. And to do that was a forbidden thing, but he did it anyway. He went into his father's concubines. Literally, he raped those women. He put a tent on top of the house so that everybody, he sent a statement out to everybody. He did to David ten times worse than what David did to him. And this was the counsel of Ahithophel because he didn't care. And in the midst of all this, what was going on here? Ahithophel was defiling others. He defiled himself. This root of bitterness sprung up and defiled others. Listen, bitterness doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone around us. It hurts us. Look again in Hebrews 12, 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. In other words, what he's saying, we've got to look diligently inside of our heart and soul for that root of bitterness. We've got to see if it's springing up. We've got to determine whether or not it's starting to burst its way through the soil where it's been hidden. We've got to look diligently because if we don't, if we don't get control of bitterness, bitterness gets control of us. And look what the Bible says, looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God. Now listen tonight, God's grace never fails any of us. How many are glad about that tonight, amen? God's grace never fails us, but we can fail the grace of God. We can, just like we can quench the Holy Spirit, we can fail the grace of God working our life. Listen, God's grace is his strength being made perfect in weakness, but when sin is in the way, and bitterness has its way, and we instead, we walk in the flesh instead of the Spirit, what happens in that moment of time, the grace of God is impaired and disabled from working. And so we find here, the Bible says, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And if we look at Ahithophel's life, there was a chain effect on many people's lives. It affected him. It affected his household. Most likely it affected Eliam. Most likely affected any descendants of Uriah. It affected Absalom. It affected these concubines. I mean, many were defiled along the way. You cannot say that bitterness doesn't affect anybody. Listen, it only takes one Christian or two Christians in a church where bitterness springs up and it defiles the whole church. It defiles the whole family. It affects everyone there. 1999, it was Father's Day. A man woke up his wife and they had a seven-month-old little boy. His name was Tyler. He woke up his wife, Amy, and he says, Amy, he said, listen, I'm going to go into the shower. I want to, would you get up Tyler up and have him ready for me when I get out of the shower? Now, that was very unusual because for the moment they brought Tyler home, that father was the one that every single day woke up Tyler and got him going. And my father was in the shower taking his time. As he came out, his wife came screaming. She was hysterical. And she said, hey, I went to the crib, and the baby was face down, and his body's cold. I think he's dead. And they called 911, and 911 came, and they tried to resuscitate the baby. And they looked the baby over. They took him back, and they just assumed that he was a victim of SID syndrome, where they basically sudden infant death syndrome. They thought maybe the baby died inside the crib. And so they took the baby away, and they went to the hospital, and they came back, and Amy's devastated. And her husband, she's not really paying attention to her husband. She's just thinking about herself introspectively. She's thinking, I should have checked him more often during the night. She's had a guilt trip upon herself. Why didn't I check him? What's going on her? And she doesn't really pay attention. There's no, nothing emotional happening with her husband. He sits down next to her. And he says, Amy, I have to tell you something today. And she said, what is that? She says, oh, don't you feel bad about our son? He said, no, I got to tell you something. He says, last night, when you went to bed, you went to bed before me, what I basically did was I played with our son and I took some saran wrap and I put the saran wrap around his face and I went away for a few minutes to brush my teeth and when I came back, I saw our son take his last breath. I turned him upside down on his face and left him there and that's how you found him there. I purposely went to the sharp because I wanted you to be the first one to find him. And she looked at him just in, in amaze like, why did you do that? 
Why? Why did you do that? He said, to get even with you. And she said, get even for what? To get even with you for several years ago when my father died and I was grieving and you were on a cruise ship on a vacation with your parents and I called you and asked you to come home to grieve with me and you decided not to go. He says, now we are even because now you get to grieve alone off the loss of our son. Let me tell you something tonight. When bitterness sets in, this is a true story what I just told you. When bitterness sets in, it defiles many along the way. An ancient Roman story says that the soldiers of Caesar became dissatisfied with their regimen and their rations. Morale was very bad. And they knew they couldn't complain to Caesar because if they complained to Caesar, they would lose their lives. And so one day in the heat of everything, one of them said, well, let's just take our bows and arrows. Let's shoot up into the heavens and we'll shoot our arrows up into the heavens and we'll shoot the gods. And maybe our arrows, because we're good archers, maybe our arrows will go far enough and will impale and hurt some of the gods. Only that they didn't realize that there were no gods to shoot at. And those arrows, as they made their way up, those arrows made their way back down. And some of those arrows came back down and killed some of those same soldiers. Hey, listen, bitterness will kill you. Bitterness will kill other people around it. We see the poison. Would you notice the penalty tonight? There's a penalty in bitterness. Go back to chapter 17. In chapter 17, verses 1 to 3, we read earlier where Ahithophel gave counsel. He says, give me 12,000 men, and I will find the king at a weak point, and I will slay him and bring back all the people to you. And the Bible tells us in verse 4, which you notice that, and the saying pleased Absalom well and all the elders of Israel. They said, that is great counsel. And they, and they thought, man, this is like the oracle's God. Let me warn you tonight. Hey, listen. Be very careful getting your counsel from a bitter person. Treat it suspiciously. Because he was a bitter man giving counsel about someone else's life. But somehow, and this is where behind the scenes, providentially, God's hand was in this matter. And Absalom knew that Hushai was an older man too and was formerly the friend of David, but still the friend of David, but David had sent him back. And David sent him back to basically uh, pretend that he was for Absalom. And he turns to Hushai and he says, Hushai, what do you think? What do you think about this council? He wanted to get a second opinion. He wanted to make sure this is the right thing to do. He says, you know, you know the king better than anybody else. He's your good friend. What do you think about this? And Hushai knew that was his opportunity. Hushai said this. He said, you know, the council of Ahithophel is not good. He says, because... You know and I know your father, if you get him cornered somewhere, he's like a wounded animal. He's going to come back biting. He said, if you send all those men out, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. There's going to be a lot of people killed. This is not the best of counsel. I don't think, King, you should follow through this. He says, King, I think a better way to pursue this is you go out. You get men from out of all the tribes of Israel. You go out to battle, and you go face the king. You bring a greater number of people up because he said, if you do so, you'll overwhelm the king. We need a larger number of people to go out. And really what Hushai in mind was to get, the, get, to get Absalom out there into the battlefield so David could face him and let David deal with the issue because he knew how David could handle things. And amazingly, as God was working, Absalom said, the counsel of Hushai is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Ahithophel had in his grasp the life of David and it just escaped his clutch. Nobody ever told Ahithophel his counsel was not good. 
In fact, they had beefed his pride up so much that he thought everything he said was the oracles of God. Let's read down a little bit further what happened to this man. We get to verse 23. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose, got him home to his city, got him home to his house, to his city. He put his household in order, and he hanged himself and died, was buried in the sepulcher of his father. His sole purpose for years was to take revenge on David. That opportunity was out of his grasp. He was so filled with hatred. He was so filled with revenge. He said, there's nothing better for me than to go home and hang myself. Hey, the wages of sin is death. Amen? He hung himself. Many people call Ahithophel the Judas of the Old Testament. He hung himself. You don't hurt anybody worse with bitterness than yourself. There's nobody that you hang worse than yourself with bitterness. Bitterness is self-destructive. His bloodstream was infiltrated. His mind was poisoned. And he cured his own penalty there. We see the presence of bitterness. We see the path of bitterness. We see the poison of bitterness. We see the penalty of bitterness. Would you notice as we close tonight, I want you to see one last thing. Would you notice the prescription for bitterness? Amen? Amen. There's a prescription. Amen? First of all, look diligently. Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God. Look diligently. Am I critical? Overly critical? Am I judgmental? Am I harboring unforgiveness? All of those things, there's bitterness there. And so God gives us a prescription. Notice, first of all, the request. When David found out Ahithophel had joined ranks with Absalom, what did David do? Did he go around and did he get bitter? No, no. David prayed. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. By the way, the name Ahithophel means the brother of foolishness. Remember that. David prayed. May I remind you tonight, the starting point, you can take all the self-help classes, you can read all the books you want, you can read Minnith and Meyer, and you can read all those different classes. I'm going to tell you tonight, those things won't help you, you need to pray. You need to confess the sin of bitterness before God. You need to ask God to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You need to pray and ask God to give you a spirit of forgiveness. You need to ask God to cut out that root of bitterness. It's just like, uh, like the Dr. Uh, uh, General Robert Lee did back at the end of the Civil War. He was touring the area. He came to a home of a woman that was crying profusely. When she saw that he came, she said, General Lee, I want you to see something. And she took him to her backyard. She says, you see that tree there? That, used to, that tree's been passed down for many generations to my 
family. She said, look what, look what the union did to that. They destroyed that tree. They bombed it. They did all those things. That tree will never come back to life. General Lee looked at that tree and he said, ma'am, cut down the tree and move on with life. And that's what we need to do. We need to realize that whatever somebody's ruined, we need to chop it down and move on with your life. Amen? Amen. Sure. need to pray. The hardest thing, I think, as Christians for us to do is to confess our sins. And the reason why it's hard, because we're too proud to tell God that we, we've done wrong. Here's the thing. If, we, if, if God already knows what we've done, why would, we want not, why would we not want to confess our sins? Why would we not want to claim 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And I'm going to tell you tonight, one of the main reasons why there's so much unanswered prayer, and one of the reasons why we're not living victorious Christian life, is we are reluctant to confess our sins to God. And foremost of that is we look at our sins of the Spirit. The Paul said this, having therefore cleansed ourselves, from sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit. Hey, listen, unless we get cleansed from those sins, God's power can never be on our life. Someone who's under the strong and the bitterness, we must pray circles around. Listen, if you know somebody that you love that's battling with bitterness, the best thing you could do for them is pray for them right now. He said, turn the counts of Ahithophel and the foolishness. There must be a request. You're never going to get over bitterness. And that's why when Peter, Peter came, over to, came over to the town of Samaria there, and he went up there to Simon, Simon Magus, and that man said, let me buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, thy money perish with thee. He said, sir, thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. There's a request, but you go to Ephesians chapter 4 with me tonight. Did you notice the remedy? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 to 32. I want you to read verse 31 with me. Would you do that, please? Can you join me with that, please? Amen? Amen. Let's read verse 31 together, all right? Let all... Let's stop there for just a minute. Bitterness. Notice the phrase, all bitterness. Did you see that? All bitterness. And it's connected to wrath and anger, and clamor. That's where, where we speak mockingly and despisingly against someone else. It's like, you know, we say something, just it's clamor that it's like that, and evil speaking. He said, put, be put away with you. Now, what does that mean? Bitterness is garbage. It's garbage. It's garbage. You know what he's saying there? Throw it away. That's what he's saying. He's saying bitterness is garbage. Throw it away. Put it away. Throw it out. I mean, that's how God looks at it. It's garbage. Put it away. Okay? Put away. Uh, it, put away means basically get it out of your sight. Trade it like garbage. All of it. Look at the siblings that coach associated with it. Wrath and anger and clamor. Listen, if you haven't had the joy of the Lord in your life for a long time because of bitterness, man, get back to joy tonight. Amen? Get back the forgiveness, the freedom that's found in forgiveness here. It's going to sound pretty hard, but mean people are bitter. And critical people are bitter. And manipulating people are bitter, and angry people are bitter. Bitterness is like an aortic aneurysm. How I many you know what an aortic aneurysm is, okay? Aortic aneurysm, okay? 
you, you get one of those, you better treat it right away because it, it's, it's a ticking time bomb. It's about ready to explode if you don't get that surgically removed. And I'm going to tell you tonight, bitterness, when, it's, when it springs up, it's like an aortic aneurysm. It's a, it's a ticking time bomb ready to explode in your spiritual life there. So number one, we need to get rid of it. We need to forsake it. We need to throw it away. I hope tonight a lot of us will just throw it away, amen? But there's a second thing we need to do. Notice, we must forgive. Look at verse 32. Now, who's Paul talking to here? He's talking to believers in one of the great churches of the first century. I mean, when Paul was down at Ephesus, I mean, there was what I would call a true evangelism explosion. Because when he was down there, listen, the Bible says that, that these people got on fire for God, and the word of God spread through out of all of Asia, Asia Minor, all of modern-day Turkey today. It spread through all those areas, and we have the seven churches of Asia Minor mentioned there. You have Ephesus was one of them, and there may have been many more. The church of Colossae was one of them, and the church at Hierapolis was one of them. I mean, these churches exploded. There was great growth. There was great things coming out of it. But those people experienced the same thing every independent Baptist church faces, and that is bitterness sets in. Bitterness springs up, and so he says, you've got to deal with it. And there was, there within that own church there in the book, in the church at Ephesus, there was a great spirit of resentment and unforgiveness that was found in that church. And he says, listen, the first thing you need to do is throw out your bitterness. The second thing you need to do, he says, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sakes had forgiven you. Now here's the starting point. Has Jesus forgiven you? Has God forgiven you? If you confess it today, would God forgive you? Of course he would. He says, if God has forgiven you, and he would, and he continue to forgive you, in the same manner, we need to be kind, we need to be tenderhearted, and forgiving one another. So deep in our hearts, we're saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I want you to go to me, James chapter 3, and we're done. And look at verse 14. And here's what James said in James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, listen, listen, glory not and lie not against the truth. To be in denial of it is lying against the truth. Or to say, I refuse to get it right and throw it away, as the Bible says, you're glorying in that bitterness. He's telling these, these Jewish believers who were having fracases and strife and division and problems because chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about having wars. But if you have bitter envy and strife in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. And this is how he describes it. For this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual. Notice this, it's devilish. I believe in my own heart that I believe a person who's extremely just, they're saturated with bitterness, I believe they've opened a window for Satan to control them. And he goes on by saying this, look, notice verse 16, for where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. But then he says, but the wisdom that descendeth from above, listen to this, this is good, is first pure, then peaceable. And he says, and gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. There it is right there. There it is right there. 
Because James put his finger on it just like we did in, in 2 Samuel and just like Paul did in other passages there. He said, listen, there's bitter envying and strife. He says, look it, there's confusion in every evil work. He said, where it's at, it's devilish, it's earthly, it's sensual. It is not, it is earthly wisdom, it is not eternal wisdom, it is not heavenly wisdom, it is not from God. And by the way, it's kind of interesting that he uses the word wisdom to describe it because Ahithophel's very name means the brother foolishness. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. So tonight as we close, I want you to think about the oyster. The oyster takes a grain of sand and works on and works on and turns into a beautiful pearl. So often we take the pearl of salvation and we turn it into a grain of sand. You destroy the good thing God wants to do in us. This evening there's a killer cancer that can affect all of us. God has a remedy. He has a cure for our lives. We need to come in prayer and turn that counsel into foolishness, Lord. Confess it before God. Then take it out. Throw it away. Throw it away. And realize that bitter envy and strife is in our heart. We're to glory not and lie not against the truth. And we need that wisdom which descended from above, which is first pure, and then it's peaceable, easy, gentle, and easy to be entreated full of mercy and good fruits, without hypocrisy, without partiality. May God help us tonight to do our own self-examination, to look diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God. Let's keep that root from springing up. Let's keep that root suppressed. Let's keep that root from being fed. Don't feed it. Don't cultivate it. Don't water it. Don't saturate it. Don't do anything to it. Leave it alone. Get before God. Say, God, don't let it spring up. And listen, bad things happen. Bad things happen to Ahithophel. And all the things he dealt with there, he didn't deal with it before God. It's going to happen in your marriage. If you're unforgiving to your spouse, you're unforgiving to your parents, you're unforgiving for something that happened years ago, like the example I gave, it can destroy your marriage, it can destroy a church, it can destroy fellowship. Listen, you better deal with it. Deal with it tonight because Dr. Jesus says if we don't, that wisdom we have is earthly, sensual, and devil. Don't glory in it and lie not against the truth.